are entering the Freedom Hut. We have a sneak peek into what a sit-down between Robert Mueller and President Trump would look like. The questions have leaked, but who leaked the questions? Also, we will get into an update on the Iran nuclear deal. Within a couple of weeks, we'll know if it is recertified. Plus, a deep dive into was Marks a good thing? You know the answer, but I'll give you some of the history of May Day to go along with it. That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Greetings, my friends, my fellow patriots. Another day down here in the swamp feel like I need one of those boats that has the big fan on the back, you know? I don't know if you call it a fan boat or whatever it is. I've actually been on them. They go very fast. Uh, but I, I need one of those to get around the swamp. Um, but it is uh, another day of back and forth between Trump and Mueller. We have all these questions that were released that are purportedly leaked to the Times purportedly about uh, what Mueller would ask Trump if they were to have a sit-down. Now, I don't think there is much in the way of surprises here. Um, the questions run the gamut of what you would expect Mueller to ask Trump if he was trying to just ask him everything, which is really what's uh, the best description of it that I can think of. Um, they're looking into a lot about the possible obstruction and then some questions dealing with Russia and you know Mueller wants to ask him everything Uh, he wants to ask him about everything Um, I I have to think that Trump is not going to do this sit down but the more it becomes a possible showdown between Trump and Mueller a kind of mano a mano vibe uh, then I think you see there's the possibility uh, that Trump will do it that he's not going to show any fear here, that he is not afraid of it. And I just bring myself back to this repeated thought on it time and again. What a giant waste this whole thing is. They're not going to find an inclusion. We've known that for so many months. They're only doing this because of this unholy alliance between Mueller and Comey and Patrick Fitzgerald these headhunter prosecutors that have really thought they were able to play God at different times in our political process by nailing one person or another in obvious partisan ways. And yet we can't seem to get past this. We can't seem to get beyond it. Um, the, The Mueller inquiry, as I see it, is intended to do exactly what it is doing which is grind away at people, the process is the punishment, cause them to spend untold millions on legal fees and lost night's sleep, and it's just part of the obstruction effort, really. There, there is a big collusion that is going on. It is the collusion of the mainstream media, the Democrat Party, the judiciary, to obstruct Trump in every way possible that they can. That's why, as I see this, I I just get so very frustrated that we even have to waste time on it as a country. 
Uh, it's not even really possible for there to be obstruction when it comes to the president firing somebody who works for him because the president is just allowed to do this. Uh, the president has the right, the constitutional right, to fire uh, to fire Comey for no reason or any reason. So how can how can we be in a place where the special counsel is looking into this? It's just a waste. It's all premised on uh, a lie. And the lie is that this is about protecting our democracy and finding out what's at the, you know, finding out how we could stop the next one. By the way, have we, is there anything that's really been raised on that one? Oh, well, we're going to have Facebook now put a little more information out there about what ads people are buying. Ooh. Notice how Facebook is now also asking a lot of people to self-identify if a post has hate speech in it. Kind of a weird thing to ask. I'll talk to you more about that one later. Uh, but, you know, I, I just see this as an obvious political fight that's playing out through the very top end, meaning the, the Mueller probe and the special counsel. That's playing out in front of all of America day in and day out. And it's just going to nowheresville. It will eventually be a nothing burger on the substance, but... The process of getting there, the in this case, the cooking, to sort of take the analogy and stretch it out a little further, is meant to be crappy. It's meant to be painful. It's meant to make people not want to work for the administration. You know, I look at how the lack of lawyers lining up to defend Trump is just indicative of what they've been able to accomplish at this point on the other side which is to scare good people away from the administration. They have this whole, oh, look at the big org chart. Look at all the people who have left Trump's side, don't want to work near him anymore. And I come at this and say, that's because of what they do to people. Look at how they go after Scott Pruitt. Look at how they go after Ronnie Jackson. Ronnie Jackson, a guy who everyone that I've heard who I trust in the media says, and who knows him, says is a, a guy of tremendous character and, and is just a good a good dude. He's a good dude and a professional. Uh, but they ruin people's lives, and you don't want to be around that. And I can understand why people who are happy, and you know, you only get to go get to go through this whole thing once. It's tough to want to sacrifice yourself if you don't even feel like you're going to be able to make that much of a difference in the machine, no matter how much you like Trump, no matter how much you think the agenda is important. It's tough to make that decision that you're going to just sacrifice your own well-being and happiness uh, and, and give it everything that's going on. You know, it really is. So I, I, I look at this now and I just see the continued slow grinding gears of this whole, uh, whole Mueller probe. And, uh, and I see that when it's all over, you know what's going to end up happening? The people that have been telling you for the last two years, the CNNs, the, uh, the MSNBCs and, and all the like, all the rest, they're going to act like they haven't been doing that. And that this was necessary to get to the point where we can all, oh, that's right, start thinking about what, what Democrat we're going to elect or replace Trump. Because I think this is going to stretch well beyond the midterms. This is going to be, I would not be surprised if this stretched into Trump's third year in office. More on the special counsel, more on the special counsel. Uh, looking at this now for obstruction, think about what that would do to the country. Imagine for a moment, Mueller tried to bring obstruction of justice charges against the president of the United States for firing 
Sanctacomi. That's what we're really talking about here. You, you fire you fire Sanctacomi and there's there's a big problem? Says who? How? Why? There's a guy who is a political infighter who plays dirty. We all know this now. Never mind the fact that he's really the opposite of, of charismatic and confidence inspiring. And does not it, it should not sit well with all the uh, patriotic special agents out there for the FBI across the country that this was the guy who really tied himself. T- Comey really tied himself into being the FBI, you know? Uh, Louis XIV, l'état, l'état, c'est moi. L'état, I know. You're like, fuck, you're Americanizing it. The state is me. Uh, for Comey, the FBI is me. And that's a disgrace. And it's not, tr- it's, first of all, it's not true, but also it, it's not helping. It's not helping the FBI to have this be the case. Uh, but but all these different questions that Mueller wanted to, uh, allegedly, uh, assuming this is correct, all these questions um, would get us nowhere as a country. Doesn't help us, doesn't prepare us for the future, doesn't do anything. It just plays into the mania that the anti-Trump forces have and that guides so much of their decision-making and their thinking. Uh, and, and this is a fixation. I mean, they really have a a... Trump debasement addiction, right? Anything that is a slam on Trump, that hurts Trump, that goes after him, they are in favor of. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked about this leak of questions, by the way, and here's what here's what she had to say. Play 17. On those list of 44 questions, the president said today that the leak was disgraceful, but a former assistant to special counsel, Robert Mueller, has suggested that the White House was behind the leak. Is he wrong? Uh, once again, I can't comment on anything regarding those questions, and I would refer you to the president's well, outside. question about, about specifically the White House <coughs> being involved in it. It was actually specific to the president, and that's why I'm referencing and referring you to the president's personal attorneys who can speak okay, on that well, matter. Uh who leaked the questions is much less important than why are these questions even in play? Why are we even at this point? This is all just going to turn into another partisan spat, another partisan dispute. And I, I will never forget what's going on here. I won't forget the journalists who salivate, who get just so excited at the prospect of you know, Paul Manafort going to prison for 30 years. Ooh, we'll all sleep better at night now who have no problem with the damage that's been done to uh, General Michael Flynn, that he faces prison time, that he's going to be a convicted felon. They, they think this was all great. Over what? Over nothing. How, I would note, McCabe could not face prison time, FBI acting director, for what he did, but Flynn is facing prison time for what he did. It's just, it's just beyond my comprehension. Or, I understand it, it just makes me really mad and... Makes me want to use some some foul language, which of course I will not do. Uh, but uh, on, another day in the news cycle of just you know, let's see how much we can talk about how they're going to get Trump. You know, there's other stuff that I want to discuss with you though, like what's going on with these asylees, the those who are requesting asylum as they are now being processed. What are we finding out about them? We'll talk about that at the border. Uh, also, some follow up to the bombshell Netanyahu presentation on Iran's nuclear program and how the uh, the left, how the Democrats are reacting to it. A lot of, oh, is Iran really better than, I mean, rather, is Israel really better than Iran? Yeah, it's really better than Iran, Democrats. That is 
that is the case. Uh, we'll spend some time on that, though. And then just Marxism and, and May Day. We've got that coming up, too. So uh, I, I'd love to hear from any of you out there that uh, have some thoughts on whether the uh, leaked questions are going to affect. I, I think they won't, really, one way or the other. I, I don't see how this changes anything. But you have uh, a theory on why the questions were leaked, who leaked them, and what it will do now that they're out there. I've got to assume that anyone's got to look at this and think that it would be completely insane for uh, for Trump to sit down with Mueller because I, I just see it as all I see it as all one big perjury trap I really do but if you have thoughts on any of that I would love to hear it 844-900-2825 844-900-BUCK quick break and we'll be right back any reaction to the news that certain members of the House Freedom Caucus have talked about drafting up articles of impeachment, <laughs> despite your best efforts to comply yeah. with their document requests. Yeah, they, they can't even resist leaking their own drafts. Would you care to elaborate on that? I saw that draft. I mean, I don't know who wrote it. Uh, it really does illustrate, though, a really important principle about the rule of law and a distinction between the way we operate in the department. And we make mistakes. You know, that's not to say we're flawless. But the way we operate in the Department of Justice, if we can accuse somebody of wrongdoing, we have to have admissible evidence and credible witnesses. We need to prepare to prove our case in court. And we have to affix our signature to the charging document. That's something that not everybody appreciates. Now, there's a lot of talk about FISA applications. And many people that I, I see talking about it seem not to recognize uh, what a FISA application Well, I think Rosenstein uh, departing would be a good thing. <laughs> but... He seems very confident that he doesn't have to worry about getting impeached. Uh, there we have it. Um, that was Rosenstein, obviously, top DOJ official now that uh, in this matter, because Jeff Sessions has recused himself. Mark in Ohio. Good to talk to you, sir. Hey, good. Hey, listen, I've been practicing law uh, 25, 30 years, uh, 14 as a litigator in Los Angeles. Um, lawyers do not write questions like that. They don't use word of thinking and how did you react and how did you feel? I mean, they, if that's if that's the experienced lawyer writing questions like that in the Justice Department, then we got even bigger problems because that that's written by a first year law student or just uh, my my feeling is there's no way that could have come out of Mueller's office. I mean, Mueller's office. I mean, that that's just written like such a first year law student that um, you know it's just it's just nonsensical. I mean, I my my, my conclusion and nothing's crazy at this point is that New York Times or somebody just drafted him up and threw him out there to keep this issue alive. I cannot imagine that came from Mueller's office. I, I, I can promise you that. But saying that how simplistic and, and that's written, not even written like a lawyer. Yeah, so uh, people said that, and also I know even on uh, up on the Drudge Report, they were saying that the the grammar was was a big issue. Right, yeah. It's just, it's just, you're just reading it. You can tell it's not written by an experienced litigator. I mean, they don't write like that, and and they're not going to accomplish anything with the but so, but why So why would the New York Times go forward? Let, let's assume it is a forgery, right? Let's, meaning that it's yeah. just somebody made up questions. What's the, what do you think the purpose of, of releasing it is? I mean, you know, because from my angle, it's, it shows that they want to ask Trump a little bit of everything, so maybe he shouldn't sit and talk to them. Oh, no way. He should not sit and talk to them. No, absolutely not. I mean, there's no credible evidence to even have him sit down to talk to anybody. I mean... Show us that evidence first, and then, then maybe he'll talk. But no, he, he'd be crazy to do anything. I mean, um, and 
but yeah, I don't know. Maybe New York Times is still trying to sell newspapers. I mean, that's all they've been doing the whole time anyway. You know, they put whatever the hell they want out there. So that, uh, well, what, you know, what do you say, Mark, since, since you seem to have a handle on this one? What do you think about the allegation that Trump himself leaked, or not himself, but someone on the Trump team leaked this out there? Well, yeah, I, I heard that too. I mean, you know, I mean, that would, you know, that, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. That, that would, I just don't maybe, see how that benefits Trump. I don't, I don't really get Yeah, you know, Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be at the direction of Trump, certainly. I mean, and, and how could you get? How could you get the New York Times? By the way, if you're a Trump surrogate, oh, you get the New York God. Times to run with this. I find that hard. <laughs> yeah, and, hard to believe. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm sure he'd be sniffed out immediately because you know only yeah. a few people have been working on that document. So I, I think that's BS. To be honest with you, I, it, it, it seems nothing more than just you know somebody trying to you know again create this. We're getting close to collusion and. You know, if he doesn't sit down, then therefore he's guilty. I mean, yeah. I don't know what they're playing. You know, he he, I mean? he 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 shouldn't uh, he shouldn't sit down and do it for sure. Um, thanks for calling in, uh, Mark. Matt in Pittsburgh. Hey, Buck. Great show. You're a great American. I actually work in law enforcement, and a key point that I'd like to make more public and people understand is when they went after Trump, they used search warrants and they violated what attorneys never do and go after their own attorneys, but they used a search warrant. Now, when they, went at, when they went after everyone else on the other side with the Democrats and Hillary and everything, it was always administrative subpoenas. And how I'd like to make people understand this if they don't know the difference, that is, if you have a sex offender who has kitty porn on a computer or a phone or device, all law enforcement uses a search warrant. Nobody sends them a letter in the mail and says, hey, we're coming to see you on the 15th, because that evidence will be gone. But that's exactly what they did on the other side with this. Wait, did it on the other side, meaning how? The Democrats, when they went after Hillary. Oh, yeah, Trump. Hillary. Okay, yeah, not with, not, with, uh, not with Cohen and the Trump side. Yeah, yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah, they, they gave Hillary every advantage in the process. I mean, that's, I think, been well, well documented. Not just every advantage. I think they bent over backwards to make sure it was basically impossible to indict her. Um, but, yeah, I, look, they, I appreciate you. innocent. Yeah, innocent appreci- before they ever started it. Um, yeah, they had already decided it. Matt, I appreciate you calling in, man, but we actually got to run into a quick break. Thank you, sir. Um, when we come back, I have uh, well, we definitely need to talk about the border, uh, but I've got some other thoughts for you on the uh, Pruitt situation too. So stay right there. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. People think of border security in very different ways. Uh, But to me, it's very simple. Border security is national security. We see 15 uh, terrorists either planning to travel or actually traveling to the United States each day, known as suspected terrorists. So that means they're coming through our legal land port and, and air. But they could be coming across that border. Border is a national security issue, that's for sure. It's a lot more than that. It's also an economic issue, a political issue, cultural issue. It touches in so many different parts of our lives. And uh, the administration says a lot of very good things on immigration, on particularly illegal immigration and border security. But I can't say that we have really seen the results yet. And I think that the rhetoric is starting to really outpace the reality. And that's a problem. You have this uh, caravan, which you will note, I've been telling you it's not going to stop. It might dissipate a bit as it has, but 
Uh, this caravan now at the uh, Tijuana San Diego border crossing. Um, you know, you, you have this caravan that's gotten there, and now you have some of them that are already being processed. Now, there's a, there's a lot of different angles I want to come at here, but one of them is just this. Just think about this for a moment. The way the media portrays this, it's people who are fleeing their country of origin because they just have no choice. Asylum is not supposed to be for, hey, the country I come from is in is in a pretty crappy condition right now. Things are bad. So I just want to be an American instead. That's called an immigrant. It's happened millions and millions of times over a long period in our country's history. Fine. But that would be people going through the immigration process. The asylum process is a separate wing, if you will. It's, it's a, a separate entry pathway for those to come into this country. And it's not supposed to be, well, the country I'm coming from has a lot of crime and it's a bad, a bad place right now. Because that's true of way too much of the world that can get here uh, either on foot or even coming to one of our ports of entry by boat or plane for us to be able to handle, right? If it were just my country is not a place I want to live, I'd rather be in America. We would be inundated. And what's the point of the legal immigration process then? You know, what's to stop somebody from saying, well, you know, yeah, I, I live in, you know, I don't know, Russia. Russia's got a high crime rate, all kinds of corruption. Oh, I can't go back to Russia because of all that stuff. If you think that I'm just, Assuming that people are gaming the system, I can I can give you some statistics courtesy of the Washington Post here. The number of foreigners making a claim of, quote, credible fear rose almost 1900 percent between 2008 and 2016. 20x, 20 times more people are now coming to the country saying I have a credible fear of going back. This is a learned statement. This is what you say when you want to be in the process. And now another way that they lie to us about this, and remember, they're processing some of these asylum requests already from the caravan. Uh, Another part of this, though, is that uh, you have those who are given asylum status, and then you just have those who get into the country and then just kind of disappear into the system. We have an enormous backlog of immigration cases in this country. No one is going to be chasing down someone who just got denied asylum. Uh, So that means that if you can get into the country at all, uh, then you can, in fact, stay in the country. This is why interior enforcement is so important. This is why E-Verify in the workplace is so important. You need to have a multifaceted, multi-pronged approach to immigration or else it's just one big con. You will have so many different ways to exploit the system and exploit uh, all the different points of entry in it, literally and figuratively. Now, I know that the Justice Department is highlighting that they are doing some enforcement here. The DOJ put out a release today that they have filed criminal charges against 11 different suspected members of the so-called caravan. According, this is uh, Jeff Sessions today. And uh, these are people who have entered illegally in violation of 
8 U.S.C. 1325. One of these guys was previously deported, and he was charged with illegal reentry. So I just want to note that you know part of the caravan are people that have already been told you are not allowed to be in this country, and they are coming back. Why do you think that's happening? And this is just the one that we've heard about. Oh, because there's this moment now where people realize you show up and you convince somebody you have a credible fear and try to play the system. And I would note, is there anyone in El Salvador, for example, which has a, an astronomically high per capita murder rate, is there anyone in uh, Honduras that cannot claim credible fear? You know, I, I actually had a very interesting uh, drive when I was in San Diego a few weeks ago. I know this is this now. Now I'm pulling a page from the Tom Friedman book. I was talking to my cab driver, uh, but I, I was speaking with my Uber driver, who was uh, very eloquent and talked to me about the neighborhoods of uh, San Diego. And we did quite a drive around because I wanted to see it. And I think San Diego is very lovely. And I, I was talking to her, and I could tell that she was of uh, Latina extraction. Right? She was uh, a Spanish speaker, and. I, I didn't jump to any conclusions, but turned out she was Mexican. And we, we, we had a chat about it. I thought it was really interesting because I said to her, you know, so is it, because she was surprised that I knew as much as I did, of course, about the levels of violence and, and cartel activity in Mexico because it doesn't get very much attention here anymore. And it's, as I've been telling you, as bad as it's ever been, 2017, worst year ever in Mexico for murders. And I said, well... Is this something where if you're in certain parts of the country, you feel like it doesn't affect you? It's not really your problem. Because you do see this in some major urban areas of this country with regard to crime within the city. I know people who live in Chicago, for example, and they say, well, yeah, Chicago has a really high murder rate, but it's all in the south and some, I think somewhat in the west of the city. Um, in New York City, a place I know very well from living there, but also from working for the, for the NYPD, vast majority of the violence there is clustered in the South Bronx and a part of what is essentially central eastern Brooklyn. That's where you have most of the homicides still. And, and so people who live in Manhattan, for example, or Staten Island, they don't, they don't go to those areas, and so they don't really pay much attention to it. So I, I asked her, I just wanted to test out the thesis. I said, well, so uh, you, know, you, you come from, she told me she came from a pretty middle or upper middle class background in Mexico by Mexican standards. I said, uh, does this really affect you? What's going on there? As we were talking about the violence, I said, or is it just if you don't live in uh, Guerrero or uh, I'm trying to think of some of the the rougher areas, right? Tijuana, actually. I mean, you go down the the Baja Peninsula uh, and uh, Cabo and that whole area, tremendous amount of violence there. And uh, I said, you know, if, if you stay out of those areas, she said, oh, no, it affects you everywhere. So well, what do you mean? She said, well, one of the things that goes on in Mexico, I'd never even heard of this before, is something called, uh, well, actually, I forget what the term is that she used, but it's essentially uh, speed kidnapping. So what's that? So, well, imagine that you get a phone call and they have to do, they can do very minimal surveillance on you to get this information, right? I mean, think about how many people would know this, just your number and that you have kids. Your phone number that you got kids. Not hard to do. And they call you and they say, well, um, uh, you know, Miss uh, So-and-so, if you don't go to this site and deposit $5,000 into a bank account in the next five minutes, 
uh, you'll never see your daughter again. Now you might say, well, the person could just call the, but are, are you going to test that theory out? They don't want a million dollars. They want $5,000. You know, we've got her. She's across the street with us right now. We'll let her go. If you give us $5,000, if you don't, we're going to, you know, we're going to cut her hand off. Or if you don't, you're never going to see her again. I mean, a really insidious addition to what we know of as kidnapping, which has been a, a terrible plague in Mexico for a long time. And she said, this has been happening. And I said, well, you know, I've never even heard of this. The, the idea being they haven't kidnapped. They actually haven't kidnapped anyone. But kidnapping is such a credible, ah, credible threat. We'll get back to this in a second. Credible threat in Mexico right now. That if somebody calls you and says, look, just give us 5000 and everything will, you know, we'll, we'll give you back your family member. I said, daughter, it could be your husband, it could be anyone. People just in a panic pay it. It's just a scam. It's a particularly evil and vicious scam, but it's just a scam. And that's how bad thing. And then she also told me that, you know, you'll see that she saw people in broad daylight uh, who were, in fact, abducted, who were kidnapped. And you see dead bodies, and this happens in some of the major cities in Mexico. It just happens. And it's a part of a of a day-to-day life there that I don't think is nearly reported on enough in, in, in our country. So I, I try to tell you about it here. I find it very interesting that I think that most Americans know a lot more about the scale and scope of violence in Syria, for example, than they do about what's going on in Mexico. Now, I'm not, I know. Mexico hasn't had 500,000 people killed in the last six, seven years. It's had probably close to 100,000, though, and it's right next door. Uh, and it's a problem for us, a national security and economic and, uh, and, and cultural issue in this country that we don't seem able to really grasp the full uh, extent and weight of. Uh, I bring all this up, one, because I just want to share that with you. I, uh, it was uh, eye-opening to hear that from somebody who had just been living in mexico until i think about six seven months ago she said and also because can anyone in mexico now i know there's designations and right now el salvador and honduras is under some designation that you know central american countries are which is why they're moving in these caravans through mexico but if it's just really about my country has a lot of violence and crime and i don't want to go back can anyone in mexico credibly claim that they uh can you know, they shouldn't have to go back. Credible fear. I have a credible fear of the cartels. I don't want to be in Mexico anymore. I'm just trying to look at this from the perspective of what are we really doing right now with our asylum policy? And what is it really based on? You can leave these Central American countries because they're in really bad shape. There are a lot of places that are in really bad shape. Why is this a designation that's being used right now? And Trump made a lot of noise and talked a lot about how he wasn't going to allow this. And now I, I look at the processing of these immigrants, and you got to think, or these uh, asylum seekers. Notice how they all, always call them migrants. I don't think that that's an accident. I've always thought that the term migrant was made to make it seem like, you know, they're just moving from one job to another. You think of migrant workers. No, these are people that are trying to come into the country through, in this case, a legal process that I, I think they're scamming, though. Many of them are scamming the legal process. Uh, and it's a, a loophole. It's the exploitation of a system that needs an overhaul and that Congress just won't touch. I think the cowardice in Congress on immigration is only superseded by their cowardice on spending and the debt, which nobody's really serious about dealing with at all. And it's just a, a complete joke. I mean, one day I'll be sitting here 
doing a radio show for you when the stock market has plunged 30, 35% in a very short period of time and everyone's freaking out because of, you know, rising interest rates and what are we going to do about the debt and how is growth going to make, you know, and then, then we can actually talk about the debt. Until then, though, nobody wants to hear about it, right? No Republican is serious about cutting spending, and Democrats feel like spending us into oblivion is a good idea. But immigration is a close second for just complete congressional cowardice. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want to talk about it. And uh, the, the asylum process, as you see it here, is just another way to uh, get around the system. Uh, all right, 844-900-2825. Uh, stay with me, team. We've got uh, David in Allentown, Pennsylvania, wants to get on the action. Hey, David. Evening, Buck. Hey, Good I'd evening. I'd just like to know what, what obligation does the United States have to uh, grant asylum if they haven't asked Mexico for it? Shouldn't they be asking the first country they come to for, for asylum? Isn't that an interesting point? It also came up, by the way, when you had all of these refugees leaving Syria who were making their way through Turkey, which is a pretty developed and reasonably well-off country itself and wanted to go not just to Europe, but they were like, no, 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 we don't want Greece. We don't want Bulgaria. Uh, we want Sweden. You know, they're, they're like, they're picking like from a catalog. I want asylum in either Germany or Sweden where they have a really nice, cushy welfare state. That was the decision that was being made in many cases. Well, it'd be interesting to know what the international law is um, in this case. I would yeah, I can't. I can't speak to the international law. It's a good. It's a very good question. I mean, I, I would. I would assume the Mexican government would say, "Well, I mean, who knows what they're going to say?" But I, I would guess they'd say something like, uh, "You know, we we don't have a a program in place for central." I mean, they, they try to keep, and they have for a long time, uh, try to limit the entry into Mexico, particularly of, of Guatemalans. And there's been some tension because the Mexican uh, Mexican authorities have been trying to keep Guatemalans out of the country, and I think. You can actually do a pretty, you can do a pretty long stint in Mexican prison if you are caught in the country working illegally as a, a Central American. But if you're just passing on through to go to America, no problem. By the way, if if Mexico was really trying to help us out, think about how different the border security situation would really be. Sure. Well, I yeah. would hang a big "sucks to be you" sign on the border fence and say, "Turn around and ask ask the guy behind you," because we have no obligation. To take yeah, well, in. Right, right now we have this law in place, and uh, uh, thank you for calling in, David. We got this law in place. Until that changes, um, uh, you're going to have more of this. Remember, it starts with a caravan of 100 getting a lot of news coverage. The next caravan could be 30,000. Who knows? Uh, remember when the unaccompanied minors surge happened some years ago? You had a huge spike in all these, quote, unaccompanied minors showing up at the border. Um, I, I, I got to talk to you about Iran because that got so much attention yesterday. That'll be coming up in a second. But first, just I was happy to see that Matt Groening, who is the creator of the hit multi-decade, uh, I was going to say, I don't know, cartoon. There you go. The Simpsons. Uh, multi-decade extravaganza. There you go. The Simpsons. Uh, he's saying over the whole controversy that, uh, you know what? People just like to, quote, pretend they're offended. Nice to see somebody who's uh, who's clapping back here, you know, who's had enough. 
I'm I'm glad that The Simpsons is not completely, you know, after that whole Hank Azaria thing where, yeah, look, he's an actor, I get it, he doesn't want the heat. But don't throw in the towel on on a beloved Simpsons character just because of some social justice wars. It's total nonsense. So uh, high five for Matt Groening of The Simpsons. Global Verification Network is the best in the background investigation and vetting business. And on top of it, they are dual certified veteran owned. Global Verification is all headquartered here in the U.S. So unlike a lot of the other guys in this business, they don't outsource your data and they don't outsource the work on it either. They keep it here on U.S.-based servers, and they have U.S.-based personnel headquartered in Chicago and spread out throughout the country that will handle your case. Whenever you're talking about working with risk mitigation experts, you really want people that you can get on the phone and that will handle your case with care. That's where Global Verification comes in. Go to MyGVN.com. That's MyGVN.com. Or call 877-695-1179. That's 877-695-1179. Global Verification Network. Leave no stone unturned. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. A lot of fallout after yesterday's uh, Netanyahu presentation hit the airwaves. People are saying that the U.S. has verified a lot of this, and reports are it is uh, is as we thought, that the Iranians are very much in the let's wait and get nukes when we can business, and have been for a long time. The Obama administration was... Interesting. Some of you say, I remember our caller yesterday, that the whole intent is to create a pathway, really a a pathway that can't be altered for Iran to get nukes. Which isn't that crazy when you read some of the scholarship on the left on this issue. uh, Didn't you have, I think you had Chris Cuomo today. Guys, see if you can pull this for me. I think he was pushing, uh, I forget if it was Netanyahu. I just saw the headline as I was doing all my reads today. Uh, for whether Israel has nukes. Didn't that happen today, or am I crazy? I think that might have happened. Maybe I imagined it. Uh, Producer Mike, tell me if you see that. But here's where we are with this whole thing. You you got, obviously, Netanyahu, who's trying to push as much as possible to get the United States to decertify the Iran nuclear deal. Play three. Iran is gobbling up one country after the, after the other. It's threatening to uh, annihilate Israel. It's trying to put its army in Syria uh, in the service of, uh, of a tyrannical regime. It's uh, putting uh, precision-guided munitions in Lebanon. That means that they can fire rockets into Israel that can hit the office I'm speaking in and everything else. Uh, they're trying to foment terrorism in Gaza. They're firing rockets into Riyadh, into Saudi Arabia, right now from Yemen, which they are also seeking to conquer. This tyrannical, anti-American regime should not have nuclear weapons. So you're familiar with the, the BB point of view on this, clearly. Uh, I, I would want to note that Obama chief national security propagandist Ben Rhodes responded earlier today to all this hullabaloo with the following, quote, by reminding everyone of the well-known pre-Iran deal history, 
Netanyahu inadvertently made the case for why the Iran deal needs to stay in place. Without it, all the restrictions on Iran's program and the inspections regime that verify compliance go away. few things here. First of all, the pre-Iran deal history uh, is not well known in the way that he's suggesting it is. And the notion that uh, violating, right, violating the initial terms of the agreement, let, let me put it this way. Here's a way to think about this. Iran had to come clean in order for this agreement to be complied with. And what we now know from the Netanyahu presentation is that they did not come clean. This is kind of like if you got a job and you lied on the resume for the job, and then after you'd had the job for a few months, somebody said, hey, hold on a second. You you lied about all your previous work experience. He said, yeah, but doesn't that prove that you want to keep me in this job, though? Right? Because otherwise, some really bad stuff can happen. No, that doesn't really make sense. Right? We are here under false under a false premise that there has been an honesty in the case of the job and now in the, in the case of the Iran nuclear program, the JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, most boring acronym ever. And I know some boring acronyms, let me tell you. Um, so I understand the need to, or the, the desire to include some parts of this Iran deal uh, that weren't included, to turn up the heat, the pressure, and to try and uh, remember, I, I don't just want better Iranian behavior on the nuclear deal. I think we should be pushing for Iran not to do the things that it's doing across the Middle East right now. That, that's where the real problem lies in the short term. Iran in Yemen, Iran in Syria, in Iraq, in name a, name a country right now in the Middle East, and you'll be able to find some destructive Iranian hand or intention at work. So that's all part of this. But then I also get this other, you hear this other point of view here. And uh, you, had, you had Pat Buchanan, I haven't heard it. I feel like Pat hasn't really gotten much attention in a while. I haven't really seen much of Pat in the headlines, you know, but Pat Buchanan's out there, and he's making the following case. Play six. Bibi has been crying wolf for decades, and U.S. intelligence agencies in 2007 and again in 2011 said with high confidence, quote, that they have no evidence of a nuclear weapons program in Iran. Subsequent to that, we had the deal. Now, if Iran has a nuclear weapons program and is working on it and it's secret, that would be an abject failure on the part of American intelligence. Maybe Netanyahu, with due respect, wants the United States to fight a war against Iran on Israel. Nobody's talking about fighting a war. My country getting into another war. That was Buchanan. I didn't realize that was actually on, on Sean's show earlier. Um... I, I gotta. I agree on the point about how we're, we're not, you know, in, in, unless unless we think Iran is about to hit us with something, and I mean like in a matter of of hours or days, maybe we we cannot get involved in a war with Iran. Uh, we we absolutely cannot. I mean, you see the way this has played out: Iraq, Afghanistan. It, it is a it is a nightmare scenario. It's a terrible idea for many many different reasons. And, and I, I do not want to get dragged into a, a fight with Iran either. Now, I think that's many, many steps down the pathway, right? That's not something that we're talking about right now with the nuclear certification issue because there was a false choice offered by the Obama administration, which was this deal or war. What about the status quo before of sanctions and international isolation on Iran? 
Why wasn't that an option? It was, but the Obama administration decided to, to throw throw it aside, um, in part for ideological reasons. They want to bring Iran to the community of nations. They think Iran was uh, the uh, victim of some bad American foreign policy in the past. You know, pre-1979, pre-Iranian revolution foreign policy. And, you know, I, I think that they also obviously wanted a very clear legacy. As I've been saying, we all know the legacy item for Obama. That was a big reason for the push here. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think I don't think that the the choices here are continue with this or war. That all said. There cannot be a, a U.S. military incursion, invasion, uh, any of that stuff into Iran. It just it cannot happen. And we need to be very clear that we don't get pushed closer and closer to that in some way. Um, and, and that's I, I do feel like that needs to be said. So in that sense, I, I think uh, Buchanan is making a valid making a valid point. Um, but it may be a bit early. But is it really ever too early to say, hey, we're not going to war in that country. We're just not doing it. Uh, we've been through so much already. I mean, you, you see what happened in Afghanistan earlier in the week. It barely gets a mention in most of the most of the major news sites. But you had a massive double suicide bombing in Kabul. Nine journalists killed. Uh, Afghanistan, I, I think I saw today that Trump said we're getting out. We should get out. We should go. Leave behind what we have to leave behind in order to support the obligations that we've already made. But... This this has got to this has got to come to a conclusion one way or another, uh, and and I'm just being honest with you. There is no strategy to win in Afghanistan that has not been tried five times before under previous leadership in country. There just isn't. So what are we doing exactly? What what's the purpose of uh, of this continued mission in that country? And I think people would start to. I, I've heard this all. I've heard this now for almost a, a decade. Since the Obama administration did its first Afghanistan review. I know I'm getting down a rabbit hole here with Afghanistan. Maybe I'll spend more time on that later in the week, but time to go. It really is. I know people are worried about what happened in Iraq and the vacuum. And uh, At some point, though, we can't, be, we can't be all that's left between complete chaos and collapse in a country. And uh, I think we've reached that point. Uh, I think it's time for us to really think long and hard about withdrawing any considerable U.S. military combat presence from Afghanistan. I think we're at seven or 8,000 right now. So uh, on, on Iran, though, I think uh, the Trump administration is, hmm, do I make a prediction today? Um, I think you got to figure at this point they're going to decertify the deal, right? Otherwise, what's all this noise about? And I'm just going to say this now, so I'm on the record with all of you listening, because I try to keep it real, try to keep it 100. Uh, we've seen now on immigration, on the debt, on a number of issues, on this omnibus bill, great stuff, great talking from the administration, but the action has not exactly followed the rhetoric. And on this Iran deal, you know, we got everyone saying it's the worst deal ever. Uh, Trump saying it's the worst deal ever, should have never been done. That means he's got to decertify. Right. I mean, the, the time has come because, you know, Pelosi thinks she's going to be Speaker of the House starting in the fall. We're going to be in a whole different political world this time next year as we're talking. Whole different universe. So the presidential 
uh, or, or the, the political power that the president has amassed needs to be used, needs to be used now. Condi Rice, uh, by the way, weighed in on this one. Uh, you know, we don't hear that much from former Bush administration officials. Uh, here's what she said about it. Play five. I wouldn't have signed this agreement to begin with. I've said that before. I think it was a weak agreement, particularly on verification. Uh, it allows uh, Iran to break out uh, after a specific period of time. I probably would have stayed in for alliance management reasons more than anything else. Uh, but I don't think that it's the end of the world if the administration leaves the uh, agreement. Clearly, right? It's not going to be the end of the world. you got a lot of people out there saying the sky is falling on this if if we were to have a change in the policy here. But I just I just don't buy it. I really don't. I think that if we uh, were to decertify, Trump will be in a position kind of like what he's in with Kim Jong-un now, which is, all right, let's really talk this through. Let's really negotiate this one. What are the Iranians going to do? Send missiles to bad actors throughout the Middle East? They're already doing that. Back up the Assad regime? Creates greater sectarian strife in Iraq? Be the uh, the silent hand and the the arm uh, behind the Houthi militia in Yemen. I mean, you know, they're already doing all that, folks. Training, equipping, subsidizing Hezbollah. They're doing all that. And they're doing it in a way that shows they do not have any regard for what we think about what's going on in that neck of the woods. So I think it's probably a good idea. Uh, I think that this is uh, it is it is time. Um but we will have to we'll have to see. But yeah, no no war in Iran. I'll tell you this. If I had it let's say it was five or ten years down the line and I had uh well no, that wouldn't be enough time. Oh gosh, I gotta think about this. Uh if I ever have to sit down with Buck Jr., my as yet imaginary son, and he says, you know, Dad, I, I want to sign up, I want to go fight in Iran, I'm telling you right now, I'm telling him no. No fighting, no no unless Iran has attacked us or something, but you're not going over there to try and topple the topple the mullahs and rebuild that country because my youth uh, was changed and my life, the course of my life, was changed by trying to help deal with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that we had. And uh, I would say none of this going over there and ma- trying to make a better country for people that aren't making it for themselves. Just not having, not having our uh, young men and women from you know, Florida, Virginia, Maine, Kansas all the way out to California, north and south, down and around. Nope, not doing it. So uh, I, I do think that there's a, a need to at least voice that concern in the interim. Uh, if you wanted to give us a ring, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We'll talk to you about uh, Roseanne on the flip side here. I'm not sure yet. We'll sort of sort of do a, a grab bag coming up here in a moment. But I do want to note, third hour, we're going to talk about Mayday, a deep dive into... Uh, the history of May Day and also how you still have why the the left still plays this game of, you know, maybe socialism. Maybe it's kind of a good thing because they do it. Um, and uh, and then I have an update for you on the Brokaw story. And that actually was Brian Williams. Tom Brokaw. That's Brokaw. There's Brian Williams, who's kind of up there. And then there's Tom Brokaw, who's down here. And then there's Ariana, who's like over here. Very different sound from the Brokaw and the uh, Brian Williams. See? We can get, we move all over the place here. We'll be right back.
I mentioned before that there was a uh, an exchange between Chris Cuomo, CNN's bro in chief. Hey, Chris Cuomo, the bro, uh, and Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel. Here's how it went. Play it. A yes/no question for you: Does Israel have nuclear capabilities and nuclear weapons? Yes or no? Uh, we've always said that we won't be the first to introduce it, so we haven't introduced it. But that's and not an answer to the question. Do you have them or do you not? Of any country. It's as good an answer as you're going to get. But I'll tell you one thing, Chris, and I think it's important. You know, Iran signed the NPT. Iran signed all sorts of uh, commitments. Iran said that they don't have this nuclear weapons program. And Iran calls daily for the annihilation of my country. Uh, first of all, Cuomo here, <laughs> this is amazing. It, it is known that Israeli policies, they will not discuss the issue of their nuclear program. They won't talk about it. So what does he think he's going to accomplish by doing that? Hey, you got nukes or what? Hey, I want to know. You got like the missiles with the, that go boom with the mushroom cloud or what? But uh, he didn't get an answer because, of course, he wasn't going to get an answer because we already know where Israel stands on that. But I think the mentality, forget about the stupidity of the question for a moment. Uh, I mean, look, he can ask, but we just know that the prime minister is not going to answer. So this is like, you know, asking any number of questions where you're, you're sure to not. So, so Israel's already in the record saying they won't, the government will not discuss this. But yeah, ask anyway, just to remind everybody that they won't discuss it. I mean, he's allowed to do it. I just think it's pretty pointless. But then there's also a mentality beneath it, too, isn't there? Like, hey, like, well, Israel, you got nukes. Maybe Iran should get nukes, too. Seems to be, to me at least, what he's trying to get at there. Um, and this is where you start to see some of the ideological reasons behind the Iran deal emerging. They, meaning the left, the Democrats and the uh, so-called progressive intelligentsia, uh, they think that really all nations are morally morally equivalent. Yeah. We all have our good stuff and our bad stuff. We're all basically pretty close to the same. Is this a smart thing? No. Is it true? No. But they kind of think this. And they are much closer to thinking that there is a moral parity between Israel and Iran than they're willing to admit publicly. The left in this country thinks that Israel is, they will say things like Israel's an apartheid state. Israel should be, uh, there's the whole divestiture campaign to divest Israel. Of, of you know trying to find ways to ec- wage economic warfare against the state of Israel. So don't th- those are just the the symptoms of the larger disease among on the American left side of things, thinking that Israel is an oppressor state, a vestige of colonialism. All of this is churning be- beneath the surface, and so that's how you get to a point where the Israeli uh, nuclear program, in the eyes of some journalists and a possible Iranian nuclear program are in any way, shape, or form somewhat similar, equivalent, you know. Maybe they should get nukes, too, is at the end of the day the, the real... Which I, I would note is what some of you have been telling me. You think that Obama wanted to make sure that it was impossible to prevent Iran from getting nukes. Um, I don't think that's... I don't think that's the case, but I'm, I'm open to being persuaded that somewhere in his head that might have been the thought process... Uh, because I know it's true of some leftists. I, I, there, there's a piece in the Council on Foreign Relations Foreign Affairs Journal. Now I know. We're getting wonky here. About exactly that. Yeah, Iran should get nukes, and then there'd be strategic parity with Israel. 
This is believed by many more people on the left than you will hear about. And I think with Cuomo there, you got a little taste, a little a little sense of, hey, Iran's got nukes, maybe Israel get nukes too. The American left is defined by hypocrisy as much as anything else these days. We know this. You know this. And on the issue of school choice and just our education system in general, it, it's hard to look at these people and take them seriously anymore. You have a, these mantras on the left about, we need more money for teachers. Teachers are our future. Yay, yay, teachers. And what they really mean is th- there needs to be more tax dollars going to teachers' unions uh, and the various bureaucrats who sit atop the educational system who have great gigs, by the way, because they're basically unfireable. They're paid way more than they would make for comparable hours in the private sector. But it's always, you know, oh, don't you care about the children? Well, I care about the children, but not making administrators more money and giving them bigger pensions and everything else. Uh, And we're just lied to constantly about the education system. On top of that, we are lied to about what people really do when it comes to their own children and the school system and school choice. There have been some excellent examples of this. I mean, really amazing stuff in recent years. And uh, one of them had to do with a plan in a part of Brooklyn, New York. Now, for those who don't know, Brooklyn may be the most left-wing hipster part of any city on the East Coast. I mean, you know, there's a reason Hillary's campaign headquarters was in Brooklyn, right? And there is a part of Brooklyn called Dumbo, uh, down under Manhattan Bridge Overpass, I believe is what it stands for, because I'm a New Yorker, so I know these things. Although I'm a swamp dweller right now in D.C. And there are only two high schools there. One high school was majority minority, and I believe majority black, and the other majority white. One high school had very high test scores, the other very low test scores. Well, if you're a leftist, if you're a Democrat, don't you think that the obvious answer then would be to do what Democrats say should happen all the time, which is, well, let's further integrate the schools. Let's let's push for diversity. They were screaming bloody murder in Dumbo. This was maybe two or three years ago over this. We have another incident of this, and this time it is in really the heart of the Democrat wealth and power structure in Manhattan, particularly with regard to the media, uh, which is the Upper West Side. I mean, the Upper East Side, which is, you know, look, I I actually grew up on the Upper East Side, so I know it really well. But the Upper West Side is where you're going to find the people who are um, running CNN, the people who are running ABC, the people who are making these decisions about what's going on in the news and everything else, uh, th- because the bureaus, CNN, ABC, are on the Upper West Side or close to it. Some of them are kind of in Midtown. You'd think, though, that this absolutely blue as blue can get and very wealthy, very elite part of our largest city would be really open to the idea of increasing, yes, that's right, diversity in the school system on the Upper West Side. You would think that given how devoted they are to diversity for everyone else and how much lip service they give to the need for diversity in schools, the need for diversity in hiring, that they would love the opportunity to lead from the front on this issue. But recently, uh, some audio made the rounds, or video actually too, made the rounds 
of what it was like at a at a uh, school board meeting when the topic of increasing diversity in some of these Upper West Side public schools came up. Here's how some of the parents reacted. Play clip 18. Now, I'm sympathetic with this woman in a sense, right? Because, yeah, I, I think that people should have vouchers. I think there should be school choice. I think that there should be, uh, that you should have a much greater say than just you live in this district. This is what you're zoned for. This is where you're going. Uh, but I would, I, I can't help but note that most, if not all, of the parents that are at these teacher, uh, these uh, con- not teacher conferences, but these uh, school board meetings, parent-teacher conferences, something else, are Democrats just based on the party registration of the Upper West Side? Okay, it is, it is the stronghold of progressivism in Manhattan in New York City. And yet here you are, and there's by the way that was just one bit of audio we played. There's tremendous pushback now, and they're covering it in local news there, but they don't want to cover it too much because it shows the hypocrisy at work here. The same people who will vote for. Democrats who will say that the school system should just always be pushing for diversity. I mean, diversity is one of the primary talking points you will hear among progressives on any issue. But when it comes to their own kids, all of a sudden, uh, when it comes to their own children, it's a little different. When it comes to how they feel about their own kids being in an environment with increased diversity, there is far less enthusiasm for this all of a sudden. And I have to note that the one of the principals or chancellors or whatever is, uh, I think the superintendent, what was he? Whatever, I think he was a superintendent of this school system. See, there's a, it's tough to keep it straight. Principal, chancellor, superintendent, you know, school board advisor, etc. I mean, there's all these people that are getting paid by the taxpayer to shuffle a lot of paper around and say it's all about the kids. But here's his response to this room full of parents on the Upper West Side who are worried about diversity in their in the schools for their kids right they're suggesting and let's just be very clear about this these parents who are so upset are saying whoa hold on if you make my school a greater proportion of or my kids school a greater proportion minority the school is going to be worse academically that is what those parents are saying that is their fear that is their statement i'm just pointing it out But they're saying, whoa, whoa, more diversity, meaning more non-white students at the school in the Upper West Side, means a worse academic environment. That is what they are claiming. Here is what the principal or whatever he is said to them. 19. There are kids that are tremendously disadvantaged. That I would love to be able to offer, somebody mentioned, $5,000 worth of tutoring for to raise their test scores. And to compare these students and say, my already advantaged kids needs more advantage. They need to be kept away from those kids is tremendously offensive to me. Tremendously offensive, he says. I I, I know what this principal, who I'm sure is a dyed-in-the-wool, deep-blue progressive, I, I know what he's saying to these folks. He's saying, hey, guys, come on, step up. You know, now's your chance to atone for your white privilege. 
You know, you're a bunch of Hillary voters, probably a bunch of Bernie voters. I'm sure they all loved Obama in that room. Uh, all voted for Obama two times. But now's your chance to really put your money where your mouth is. And <gasps> their mouths are saying really, really astonishing things like, oh, I don't want diversity in my child's school, they say. We've got enough diversity. Maybe a little less diversity would be good. Well, hold on a second, folks. I thought diversity was always a good thing, according to Democrats. I thought that they love diversity. They want it for you. They want it for your children's schools. They want the Department of Education in Washington, D.C. to be making policy that affects you wherever you are in the country now if your child goes to public school. And diversity is you know, the, the, the strength of the school system, they will tell you. Oh, but no, they they seem to have a problem with this. We've all been told so much about our white privilege and the need to check that privilege, but the parents in that room, they, they seem to want to hold on to that privilege, whatever it may be. They're, they're not willing to give that up. And this is an experiment that I can tell you plays out time and again in so many ways across the country with Democrats who talk this big game about how they want diversity and they want uh, multiculturalism in the schools. You know, they want English as a second language. They want as many, oh my gosh, the more uh, refugee and asylum-claiming families and students into the country, the better, just not in their neighborhood. I think we all see what's at work here. I think we see the hypocrisy. And we see what in... If other people were doing this, right, if you listen to this wherever you are, though I know a lot of you live in cities that are very blue, but if you were saying this about diversity in the school, these parents on the Upper West Side or in Dumbo or I'm sure in L.A. or Chicago or you name it, they would say that what you were claiming was racist. But for them, it's just they don't want to cheat their children out of the, out of the best education possible. They're just doing the best for their kids. <gasps> oh, maybe other people take that approach, too. Maybe school choice would be better for everyone. Maybe empowering parents of any ethnic background, minority students, white students, anybody, to make choices about where they go to school would be better for everyone. It would force the schools to be better. Maybe that's one solution. This Instead of sacrificing other people's kids for the diversity worship that has, been, that has become such a central feature of the Democrat Party, but that would require some honesty, right? That would require looking at the situation for what it is, not as Democrats wish it to be. Uh, but you got to, I'm telling you, go and check this out. Um, you had 17 middle schools uh, that were supposed to be reserving their seats for low-scoring students. That's, that's one way they're going to do this and uh, to try to increase diversity. And the parents at these schools were freaking out, and they're Democrats. No surprise. In a few minutes, team, I'm going to give you the background of May Day, uh, which is a, a history that I, I like to tell here on the show. Uh, take you back to the Haymarket Massacre, uh, the origins of the workers' movement in Chicago, and I think you'll you'll enjoy some of that. We'll do a bit of a deep dive into it. I, I just first wanted to note, though, that while here May Day is kind of a wah-wah situation, uh, the news from the day shows you that uh, overseas— it is, it is still very much a thing that gets the radical left out and mobilized. You had uh, May Day protesters 
that were marking International Workers' Day, which, as we will discuss, is what it's called in the rest of the world. Um, it's, and it's, it is a socialist holiday. And you had marchers that were holding banners of, of Stalin. Now, you know, there's, there's a part of me that, if, that initially sees this and says, uh, perhaps this is just the result of tremendous ignorance. Uh, historical ignorance, not knowing, not understanding what Stalin really did. Uh, I, I would be willing to bet that none of these Brits. Uh, oh, and in Paris there were also riots today. So it's not just it's not just Britain. Uh, there are other countries too. There's uh, all over the place. You, you had anarchists smashing windows, looting, and rioting uh, in Paris. So don't think that that this is limited to any one place. It's all across Europe. But there's this historical ignorance that I, I would assume is the result of, well, a lot of people holding up Stalin photos and banners who don't read much in the way of books and haven't read very much, don't know things. Um, and, and sure, that's true. I, I doubt any of these people in London, in Paris, or any of the little kind of uh, piddly, unimportant marches that have occurred in this country today as well. Uh, they haven't read The Great Terror by Robert Conquest. They don't understand the full depth of Stalin's decolonization policy, uh, where there was the, the liquidation of uh, farmers, really, as a class that occurred. Uh, the kulaks were kind of the peasant farmers. Uh, how that was an official policy of the Soviet state. And the mass executions... Of, uh, of peasants that occurred during the, the, the Great Terror, uh, and then the purges that occurred within the Soviet regime and, and the military more specifically, uh, that amounted to millions of people. Millions and millions of people killed by Stalin. Um, there's a part of me that would like to think that these imbeciles in London and Paris and elsewhere, uh, marching with Stalin banners, with Soviet flags, just don't know this, but... There are these radicals that you'll see, and uh, I'm going to talk to you in, in a few minutes about the, yes, the backstory, the history of May Day in this country, but also there's a New York Times piece on how Marx was right, editorial piece, but uh, there are PhDs, there are ostensibly really educated people out there who still cling to this, and who must know the history, at least in broad strokes, of what happened in the Soviet Union, what happened in China, uh, Mao's Great Leap Forward was one of the greatest man-made disasters. In fact, some argue the greatest man-made disaster by any one government to its own people in history. Uh, 60 million dead, they estimate. Maybe 40 to 60, they can't really keep track. But, but that's like the number that died in all of World War II. And many of them died through starvation. And if you go back and read about the Great Leap Forward under Mao... Uh, there was a tremendous amount of, of violence that occurred because when people are starving, they get desperate. And when the party apparatus was dealing with millions of starving peasants in the in the countryside, uh, what they did to maintain order was just the height of brutality and savagery. I have to think that these PhDs that are pro-Marx, that are pro-communism, know about this stuff. So then I guess the only way to explain their thinking is that they think that that cost was worth it, that at some point there will be a glorious and beautiful future for us all that will only come through, I, I suppose, more bloodshed, more loss, more starvation. But at some point, 
we will reach this workers' paradise that was promised by Lenin and Marx and others, uh, this utopia, um, the uh, you know the, the the proletariat's paradise will be awaiting us. I I, I don't know. It, it's a fundamentalism, really. It is a a delusion that relies on all kinds of blindness. Uh, and the blindness of what's going on today, too. I mean, Venezuela is a country that I think is such a clear marker of what happens when people take a, redis- a redistributionist view and a statist view. And remember, Venezuela had good intentions. It was a social justice warrior run country and it was run right into the ground and now right into the sewer beneath it it is in desperate circumstances so we don't even have to look back into history you can just do a google search or look at the news today how is it possible that you have these idiots marching in praise of the soviet union in pray and not not a handful not a couple here and there thousands of them breaking things this radical left element that I would note also exists in this country, in Antifa. Uh, you have the, <laughs> the the great irony of Antifa is, of course, they use fascist tactics to oppose fascism. But uh, Marxism has killed so many people over the 20th century and will kill so many more of the 21st unless we actually stand up to this. I'm going to tell you about the history of May Day, though, when we come right back. Welcome to Hour 3 of the Buck Sexton Show, and... I would say happy May Day to all of you, but once you know more of the backstory of how we got May Day, how this became something of a holiday, you feel a little different about it. It is, in fact, a socialist tradition, socialist holiday. But before I get into that, some more necessary history of of this whole thing. First of all, uh, May Day is also an international distress call. And I always know people say, well, does it have to do with May 1st? The answer is no. The call out, so when someone's in a plane, May Day, May Day, that comes from the French, Venez, May Day, which means come and help me. And as you know, this is repeated three times if a plane is going down or there's any any problems. Uh, Back in 1927, the International Radio Telegraph Convention of Washington made May Day the official voice distressed call. So that's when things are really, really bad. The most serious call-out you can put out there is May Day, uh, May Day. But let's talk about Socialist Workers' Day, the May Day that we're currently in. And before we even get into that, I want to give you a little bit of of an additional history of uh, how we got to the, the one incident, the Haymarket Affair, that led to the commemoration on May 1st of May Day. See, it happened back in Chicago. It all started in Chicago in the 1880s. Uh, Chicago was a totally booming city, but you can go a bit before that to get a sense of uh, how quickly the workers' struggles of Chicago came to be based on the incredible growth of the city of Chicago itself. By the way, Chicago is the French version of the Miami and Illinois tribes word Chicaqua, which means stinky onion. Not to be confused with Milwaukee, which means the good land. Uh, So that's because of the plants along the Chicago River. Uh, So for some of you, Chicago really means uh, stinky town in the Native American tongue uh, initially. But uh, there were only some small settlements there. It was a military post called Fort Dearborn 
The Brits destroyed that one back in the War of 1812. But it was in 1830, the Illinois legislature set up a town that by 1833 only had 350 residents. Uh, and that's Remember, Chicago is now America's third largest city. Uh, but as is true in real estate, only three things really matter. Location, location, location. Chicago was on a great piece of land. And so the boom happened with incredible speed there. They already had the lake traffic because of the uh, opening of the canal in 1848. So the Great Lakes traffic that connected the Mississippi River and the uh, Gulf of Mexico with Chicago at the Nexus meant that uh, at a time before automobile travel, when things could really only go over a river, at least in bulk, it was a phenomenal time to be in in, in that region of the country, uh, in that particular portion of the country on the Chicago River. So in 1860s, you had a city of 109,000. By the end of the 1880s, it was at a million. So you had a 10x increase in about 30 years in the city of Chicago. Now, back in 1871, there's a huge fire. It, it burned actually from a Sunday until a Tuesday. Uh, this is back when things were all made of wood. Most, not everything, but things were mostly made of wood. So you had a quarter of all the homes in Chicago burned down. And that's what allowed, though, for the city planning to occur, where you've got all these parks now along the Chicago lakefront. Uh, But then the railroads came along. And that's when things got uh, really, uh, really intense. The the boom really hit hard in Chicago uh, because Chicago was the hub of the railroad network that reached the Pacific in 1869. So you had all these raw materials from the newly opened West that were being shipped to the east. And guess what? Where you have raw materials and the transport of them, you have a need for manufacturing, or rather you have an opening for manufacturing. So you had all these factories that popped up in Chicago with just vast amounts of new workers. And a lot of these workers were, in fact, immigrants. So the immigrants to Chicago in the 1870s, 1880s uh, were First, Germans, actually, and then you had a lot of Irish Catholics during the uh, potato famine, and then you had Scandinavians, and then you had Polish, uh, Italians, uh, Jews, and then it was after the First World War that you had the uh, great migration of African Americans to Chicago. Uh, But this is why the city of Chicago became a major center of the labor movement. You had all these factories, and you had a lot of new immigrants showing up, and those immigrants... Uh, came from countries where, oh, yes, indeed, you had already had the spread of some Marxist, socialist, redistributionist ideas, and they brought them, uh, they brought those ideas with them. Now, I'm I'm not saying that it wasn't a a hard time to be a worker in Chicago back in the uh, 1880s. Uh, You had a 60-hour, six-day-a-week work week was pretty standard. So there, there was a labor and management conflict that was constantly flaring up there. You had firings and walkouts, and workers would be blacklisted. And newspapers, fake news, no surprise here, played a big role in all these tension. Most of the papers, though, because, you know, who's buying papers and who owns papers, were always taking the side of the uh, the capitalists. And so you had radical leftists. And th- this is a, a part of the Chicago history I think is really interesting. Radical leftists that began producing their own publications. Uh, so they, they created these underground workers' newspapers, which were really basically commie-ish. 
Uh, and you had one in particular, the Arbeiter Zeitung, which was edited by August Spies. Looks like spies, but I think it's Spies, although I don't know. Uh, where they would write about this workers' struggle. And remember, we think of the major threats now against us. Well, we are in a, a an era of concern over jihadist terrorism and infiltration. But back in the 1880s, 1890s, it was actually anarchists who are very closely ideologically tied to uh, radical socialists that were the, the, the big bad guys on the block. Remember, in 1901... You had the assassination of William McKinley. Uh, that occurred on September 6, 1901, by Leon Chowgosh. And, you know, Theodore Roosevelt went and said that after the assassination, he said the following, when compared with the suppression of anarchy, every question since, uh, sinks into insignificance. The anarchist is the enemy of humanity, the enemy of all mankind, and his is a deeper degree of criminality than any other. No immigrant is allowed to come to our shores if he is an anarchist, and no paper published here or abroad should be permitted in circulation in this country if it propagates anarchist opinions. That was from the White House back in uh, 1908, Teddy Roosevelt. So just remember this when people say, oh, you know, we can't have any, we can't have any ideological tests. We can't have any tests for immigration. Well, actually, we've had numerous ideological tests stretching back to periods in our history when we really didn't want the infiltration of communists and socialists into this country because of the very real subversions they were engaged in. Uh, and there was also uh, a couple of very big anarchist bombings that came after that. Los Angeles Times was bombed in 1910. Uh, that, that killed 21 newspaper employees. Uh, although people weren't really, at the time, sure about it, um, they were labor radicals, anarchists, socialists. It wasn't really, well, it wasn't really clear uh, who was behind that at the time. And then in 1920, you had that big bomb on Wall Street, 12.01 p.m. on September 16th, 1920. A horse-drawn carriage, kind of the IED or the VBIED of its day, uh, pulled up with 500 pounds of dynamite, cast iron weights. Those were used as uh, shrapnel, and it was an enormous IED. And that was anarchists. They killed 30 people and then eight died of wounds thereafter and damaged the stock exchange uh, pretty badly. And that was carried out by a faction of Italian anarchists called Gallienists. Uh, they were all about labor struggles and anti-capitalist agitation. So the Convention of Labor... Now, why am I telling you about this? Well, the Convention of Labor Movements in 1884 decided that May 1st, 1886, would be, uh, would be the beginning of the eight-hour workday. They also prepared for a general strike, which happened in cities across the country. And this is where then we will get into what happened in Chicago, and therefore more of the backstory of how we got to the celebration of May Day that became a thing that's kind of faded, but people still talk about it now, certainly in socialist circles, uh, I will give you that and uh, and more. W what was the violent incident commemorated on May 1st? And uh, what what does it mean when we think about socialism today? We'll get to that coming up. All right, we're back with our uh, discussion of the history of May Day, my friends. And I, I wanted to uh, just, you know, I think it's important because you've got pieces getting published, for example, in the New York Times, 
Uh, here's one. Happy birthday, Karl Marx. You were right. That was obviously meant to coincide with the uh, May Day anniversary here. And while you and I are kind of like, who cares about May Day? A lot of socialists and uh, and anarchists and other folks who are of the of the far radical left think that May Day is still a pretty big deal. In fact, the Occupy Wall Street movement not long ago made sure that uh, May Day was something they commemorated with some big uh, rallies in New York City, thousands, tens of thousands of people at rallies across the country. Uh, I was at the I covered them for the Blaze at the time. So, uh, ba- but back to the Haymarket affair and, and May Day and what happened there. Um, you had striking workers in Chicago that gathered near the McCormick Harvesting Machine Plant where, where there were strikers and strike breakers, and there was a face-off, and there were hundreds of police brought in. And this then led to uh, some, some violence. The police opened fire and killed two people, and the, the anarchists in Chicago uh, back in the 1880s figured that this was going to be a good time to start making noise about how they need to fight back against these rapacious capitalists. Uh, so you had Spies, Albert or Albert Spies, however, he, writing the Arbeiter Zeitung, the radical left paper of Chicago, that blood has flowed. It had to be, and it was, not in vain has order drilled and trained its bloodhounds. It was not for fun that the militia was practiced in street fighting, the robbers who know best of all what wretches they are, who pile up their money through the misery of the masses, who make a trade of the slow murder of the families of working men, are the last ones to stop short at the direct shooting down of working men. End quote. Uh, so there you go. Oh, but he, he finishes this with, but the working men are not sheep and will, will reply to the white terror with the red terror. Huh. So uh, things were getting a little intense, obviously. And then we get to the Haymarket Affair, 1886, which actually happened on May 4th. Uh, But you had a a group that gathered, uh, and a series of speeches were given to them, and the police showed up. Remember, this is all about striking, strike-breaking, workers' movement. And the police ordered everyone at this rally to disperse. And this came after the previous violent incident I mentioned to you, where you'd already had some... Uh, workers get killed in an exchange with the cops and a bomb was thrown into the uh, the path of these officers. Um, so and people then later called this the Haymarket riot or the Haymarket massacre and a dynamite bomb uh, dynamite bomb was thrown into that group. It killed uh, seven and there was gunfire from the police in response. Scores of people were wounded and three workers were killed. And from that, obviously, now now you get a lot of attention. And uh, people started referring to these protesters, the left started referring to these protesters as Haymarket martyrs. And uh, they they were obviously very, very upset about this. Uh, the eight, anarchi- eight anarchists were convicted of conspiracy and seven were sentenced to death. One was only sentenced to 15 years. This is all about the Haymarket affair now. And nobody knows really who threw the bomb. Uh, to this day, it is not really known uh, who threw the bomb. But uh, there are a lot of conspiracies about, conspiracy theories at least, about whether there was any infiltration of the group and on all the rest of it. The governor ended up coming in and pardoning some of these. Uh, this was Governor John Peter Altgeld, 
He came in and pardoned some of them. And uh, in 1889, AFL President Samuel Gompers wrote to the first Congress of the Second International. They were all having a meeting in Paris. And uh, he said that the world socialists plan to uh, propose an international fight for a universal eight-hour day. And also, oh, by the way, the Internationale then decided to adopt May 1st, 1890 as the date for the demonstration. So you had kind of some back and forth over this. So you had the International Workers' Day and Socialist Communists of the Second International to commemorate the Haymarket Affair in Chicago, uh, commemorated this as May Day. Um, so there you have it. There you, there, there you have some of the, uh, some of the backstory here. And you had the Americanization of it that has occurred to this point. Uh, where they called it, they started calling it Loyalty Day, right? Because they realized, hey, we shouldn't really have a commie holiday. So they started calling it Loyalty Day for a while, but that didn't really stick. So May Day is not something that you and I can get all that excited about, because it's really about uh, international labor movements, socialism, and, and Marxism. And the Haymarket Affair in 1886 is what got really got it on the map, um, because the movement then had their martyrs, in a sense, right? The, mo- the movement then became something that could point to bloodshed and say, see, and now you know why we have a uh, have, have May Day on the schedule, you know, on your calendar. But I just want to mention this New York Times piece on Karl Marx, since it is May Day, since the International and all that is part of this history. Uh, this is how the piece ends. The transition to a new society. So this was just published, New York Times, I think uh, yesterday or the day before. Uh, The author writes, Jason Barker, who's a professor of philosophy, no surprise, writes, the transition to a new society where relations among people rather than capital relations finally determines an individual's worth uh, is arguably proving to be quite a task. Marx, as I have said, does not offer a one-size-fits-all formula for enacting social change, but he does offer a powerful intellectual acid test for that change. On that basis, we are destined to keep citing him and testing his ideas until the kind of society that he struggled to bring about and that increasing numbers of us now desire is finally realized. Um, you see, among academics, it's, it's still that Marx is right. He just, we just haven't gotten Marx right yet. It's a pretty scary way for those who are supposed to be studying this and, and have some knowledge. It's pretty frightening and terrifying that this is where they are on it, but they will never learn on this one. Um, They don't seem to understand that as much as it would be nice if we could all just share or have the government share on our behalf, uh, it goes against human nature. That if you try to order a society absent self-interest, which is what Marxism is based on, right? If you're trying to order a society where your own uh, pursuit and destiny is not the central characteristic of how individuals uh, interact with each other, you are you are going to fail because that will overcome whatever system you put in place, whatever you know revolutionary proletariat you think you're going to have, or or professional revolutionaries in the case of communism who will do things on behalf of the proletariat. It is destined to failure. But even to this day, a lot of people on the left in this country think that Marx got it right. We just haven't figured out how to do Marxism right yet. So that's my May Day message for you: how crazy and wrong they all are. Uh, I'll be back with you in just a sec.
So I, I wanted to follow up with the latest allegations about Tom Brokaw. Now I'm going to make fun of this guy. Um, I, I've never thought that Brokaw was impressive. I've never found him interesting. And whenever I've heard him on a panel or when he when he goes off script to share his thoughts, it's just pablum. It's, you know, this country has an obligation to take the best of journalism and uh, share it with the American people. Uh, it's just not good. Bro- Brokaw is just not impressive. I, he's lucky, very lucky guy. And sometimes better to be lucky than good in a lot of industries. Uh, so I, I don't have any reverence for him whatsoever. I know a lot of other people in the news business do for whatever reason. Um, I, I think that the news business has changed so much since people like Brokaw could make enormous salaries and were celebrated all over the world um, that I, I don't even think Brokaw would, would like get a job in the BuzzFeed newsroom if he were on the scene today. You know, it's just so different. You have to be able to do so much more. And anyway, uh, but, but, but Brokaw, is, uh, he's in some trouble. As you know, he's been accused of... of uh, assaulting two women now whether it was it sounds to me more like sexual harassment would be the claim although she said that he tried to kiss her and then tried to use force Uh, you know so we're we're getting into a is it just sexual harassment or does it actually cross the boundaries into sexual assault um but what i think is interesting about this case because i initially came to it as you know last week and i just wanted to follow up on it uh was I said, well, you know, what are we to do about an allegation from the 90s that there's no proof about and cannot be proven one way or the other? And this is somebody who is a luminary on the left, right? Broke, Brokaw. I'm, I'm going to stop now. Oh, stop it, Buck. It's not nice. Uh, but Brokaw is a guy who, you know, is celebrated by Democrats for a long time, was carrying water for the Democrat Party for a very long time. But they have this whole thing about women are to be believed. So... What what do we make of this? What are we to say about this? And it was interesting that NBC, which, remember, is the Matt Lauer network, and also the let's not have the Weinstein story break on our network that Ronan Farrow is do- doing because we have too many people that have connections to Weinstein, I guess, at the senior level. Um, now you had a lot of people sign this letter defending Brokaw, which I would note, I don't really know how you can defend somebody about an allegation that you weren't present for that you know nothing about. Well, what does that even mean, right? It, it, to, to say that you're gonna you're gonna sign you're gonna say that he was overall a great guy. Other than this, okay, that doesn't really matter though. It's you know uh, there's this whole notion of all these people rushing forward. And by the way, they're big names: uh, Andrea Mitchell. Mika Brzezinski, Rachel Maddow, uh, a lot of people signed, I think over 100 people signed this letter that they were uh, supporting Brokaw. So I guess women are not to be believed if it's a big Democrat target that you can't prove did anything wrong, right? At that point, they got to draw, they, they're drawing the line there. I think we all know that if this were somebody who was considered a conservative or unfriendly to the cause, there would not be this push to sign some letter uh, that would be intended to, I suppose, call his accuser a liar, which is, I, I don't know, what, what else do they think they're accomplishing by writing this letter? Um, they have no knowledge whatsoever of this incident in question. 
You have one named woman, one woman who has not been named, but has, as an anonymous source, said she was also assaulted by Brokaw. I find it completely plausible that Tom Brokaw, who is a pompous windbag, uh, thought that it was a little additional perk of his power and his job to be able to, you know, come on to females in his business without any, uh, without any problem, right? So I'd say I find it plausible. I, can't, I wasn't there. I don't know. But I just find the hypocrisy from the left here to be really illuminating. Uh, and, and I have to say that uh, now the news that is being reported on here by our friend Emily Zanotti over on the Daily Wire, that a lot of these women have now come out. Women who signed this letter said they were pressed into service to defend Brokaw. Oh, gosh. Here we go. What do you mean, pressed into service? I mean that they were told, or they they felt at least, that they had to sign this. If they didn't sign this letter, they would be on the wrong side of NBC management. So well, what does that tell you about the culture at NBC right now? By the way, just putting that out there, that for some people, they're going to put out this uh, notion of a, well, you're seeing this all over the place. See with MSNBC and Joy Reid. You see it with uh, with NBC, big NBC, and the way it's responding to the allegations against Tom Brokaw. There are just some people who are kind of protected, who get the benefit of the doubt, and there are other, and they are on the left, and they're useful to the left. And then there are other people who have to get fed to the lions, whether they're guilty or not. Doesn't even matter, right? They're toast. They're gone. They're out. They're fired. And uh, I just think it's so interesting that NBC is now being accused of of uh, pressuring women into signing a statement meant to undermine a claim made by a woman pressured by the biggest name at NBC for decades. That's what's really going on here, isn't it? All right. Roll call up next. Day two of my swamp visit extravaganza is underway here, team. Very much uh, enjoying my time here, even though it's a bit boggy, it's a bit uh, of a of a, of a dense fog around this city of all the uh, self congratulation and inside uh, dealing and and all kinds of puffery and nincompoopery. But uh, I wanted to get into our roll call here straight away. And by the way, if you want to be a part of the wonderful thing known as roll call, you just go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton and uh, send us a message there. Tomorrow I'll try to remind try to remind producer Mike to send me the emails as well. I know I feel like the emails don't get as much love as the Facebook account does. But then again, Facebook these days is making me sad with its nonsense like, is this hate speech on all these different posts that you can put up there? I, my guess is that most people who would be writing hate speech would click no on is this hate speech but perhaps i'm perhaps i'm missing something there's always that possibility all right now we have all kinds of wonderful messages here we got paul up he writes buck love your show don't let april go by without remembering the minutemen at lexington green and concord bridge people talked about the oklahoma city bombing and don't name the bomber Talk Radio talked about him, but nobody talked about our real memory of April the 19th when the Patriots that took the shot around the world was heard. Uh, thank you, Paul, from Michigan. All right, Paul. Well, I appreciate the uh, the feedback and the thoughts on things, so great. Oh, look at this. Kiara. 
who has a very uh, intricate spelling of her name, uh, which is which is fun. Uh, Kiara writes, uh, Buck, I just got this shirt from my best friend for my birthday. I was so excited when I opened it that I jumped up and down. Go team Buck. Love your show. She sent a purple uh, ladies fit team Buck t-shirt photo, uh, which you can indeed get on BuckSexton.com. So uh, check that out, please. Uh, and Kiara, thank you so much for your support. And, and I'm glad you enjoy the t-shirt. I they're very comfortable. They're very well made. I will say, um, I I wear, I wear them. Uh, Miss Molly wears them. I tend not to wear Team Buck T-shirts out of the house because I think that if you're if you're in the band, you don't. There's there's a special rule. If you're in the band, you don't wear the T-shirt of the band. But you want everybody else who likes the band obviously wearing the T-shirt, right? But if I if I wear my own gear outside the house, I wear it around the house. I wear it to work out into. Uh, but I think that people would maybe make fun of me a little bit for that. Uh, but the T-shirts are great. Please do check them out, BuckSexton.com, if you have any uh, interest in seeing for yourself. Sean writes, wait, cultural appropriation is not okay, but gender appropriation is fine? I'm getting confused. Well, you're not the only one, my friend. As I have said in the last 24 hours on Twitter, Cultural appropriation is an indefensively stupid concept that cannot be defined, enforced, or understood. You can't get people to explain to you what it is. You can't get people to offer up when it is appropriate and not appropriate for someone to, quote, borrow part of a different culture. And also, anyone who has even the faintest understanding of what a culture is knows that there aren't clear boundaries there aren't, in fact, borders between cultures. All cultures tend to spill over. I mean, th- think about this. If you live in uh, parts of, let's say, Arizona or New Mexico, and y- you, uh, you, you have, uh, you- you're wearing a sombrero, for example, are you appropriating culture, or is that just something that people in your part of the world do, right? If you are uh, wearing any number of different garments from around the world outside the boundaries of whatever the specific country is, are you appropriating culture or is that just something that you guys have adopted over time, right? You know, you think about this, there's appropriation of weapons, there's appropriation of food, of, and that's another thing. Am, Am I not allowed to eat Indian food now? Or Vietnamese food? Or these are some of my favorites. I don't eat a lot of Chinese food, but that's beside the point. Uh, is that now appropriation that I'm supposed to feel bad about? Who do I ask for permission to be able to eat ethnic food now as a white guy? Oh, I guess it's okay because I'm paying for it. So does that mean if I pay to rent a costume of another culture and wear it for whatever reason, is that is that okay? I also want to know who gets to wear three-piece suits and a necktie and who doesn't. It comes from Western Europe, but it's common around the entire world. So is someone now going to tell me that any uh, a businessman from Shanghai who's wearing a uh, several row suit, those of you who are fancy and bougie know what I'm talking about, is that cultural appropriation? I, I know it, it, I'm running in circles here, and it almost feels incoherent, but that's the point. It is incoherent. There's no such thing as cultural appropriation. No one really knows what it is. It's just a way, quite honestly, of finding an- yet another means to criticize what is supposed to be the or what is uh, alleged to be the the dominant paradigm in this country, uh, which is white males and how and and in this case, white females, too, and how they adopt 
other cultural traits or other treasures from other cultures without bending the knee and asking for permission and or forgiveness. Uh, But it's complete and utter nonsense. It's a nonsense concept. So uh, next up here, we have Stephen, who sent a photo of a baby Oberhashli goat. Very cute, Stephen. I'm assuming this is at a farm where either you work or own the farm. The baby goat is adorable. Jeremy writes, Hey, Buck, got a photo of our family corgi, Walter, when he was four weeks old. Jeremy's uh, corgi is adorable as well. And we're going to have to take some of these and put them on the Facebook page so people can uh, can hear them. Uh, I'm sorry, can see them. Hearing the photos would not be all that much fun. And now we have a guy, uh, we got William, who writes, uh, this is the fastest egg cracker from Nick's Deli, uh, Seal Beach and Los Alamitos. Okay, yeah, this guy's cracking eggs super fast. William is telling me here, go sit in the corner. I didn't say, William, that I, I crack eggs faster than anybody else. I just said that I can do it one-handed now and not get shell in the omelet. So the joke's on you, sir, or something like that. Just kidding, William. Thanks for writing. Uh, Randy writes, I've heard time and again that Obama wanted the Iran nuclear deal as a major foreign policy legacy. What kind of legacy did he want? Was he trying to outdo Neville Chamberlain's? Well, Randy, the left sees this. You got you to remember, the left sees all Obama foreign policy maneuvers in the context of what the George W. Bush foreign policy was before it. And so they were always operating from a premise of not Bush is a great thing. And so whatever you do that is not Bush is, in fact, something to be celebrated. And they would argue that by Obama not doing anything in Syria, uh, that's a brilliant maneuver. Libya is a disaster of the Obama administration's making, but the media just kind of cast that aside. They don't really care. Uh, but not Bush was the Obama foreign policy mantra. And also, and, and this was literally the case, don't do stupid stuff, except they didn't use the word stuff. Even Hillary Clinton herself said that that was not an organizing principle for foreign policy. So what does that mean? means the Obama team was not nearly as clever as they thought they were on the world stage. But Obama liked to think of himself as creating peace in or or the long term prospect of peace in the Middle East via an Iran deal. And that was what they were going for. It was a failure, but that was the that was the plan. Uh, Hank writes, wow, he's got a lot of stuff here. Uh, My Peruvian long hair guinea pigs. Mom and baby mom's head is to the left. And then another pic of my three-week-old Peruvian guinea pigs. Uh, Check out my Facebook page, Hank's Piggies for Peruvian guinea pigs. These are some funky-looking little dudes. I have never seen a Peruvian guinea pig before. So, yeah, go check out (laughs) Hank's photos. It's kind of tough to tell what they are when you look at them. I'm like, what is this? It's a little bit like if you took the abominable snowman and shrunk it down so that it was able to fit in the palm of your hand. I think that's a pretty good description. They're like this big furry ball. Um, But yeah, thank you, Hank. Very, very cool. Very cute. Um, Monica writes in with, hey, Buck, you said send small pet pictures. This is what a rabbit looks like in Japan. Husband of Monica delivers, as always, 
uh, from Monica. Uh, yeah, this is rabbits in Japan look quite different. Actually, it looks more like a a cross between a hare and your traditional rabbit, I guess. Uh, not that I'm a rabbit expert. You're probably like Buck. A hare is a rabbit. A schooner is a sailboat. I don't know. These are things that you need to. I need to do some more research on. Uh, Roberto also in here with a, a photo of Sasha, four months old. Looks like a Chihuahua, maybe a Chihuahua mix. Shields high. Roberto writes. Oh, Sasha's very cute. All right, team. I've got so many cute photos here, but describing them on radio doesn't do them justice. So we'll have to take a whole slew of them and uh, post them on the Facebook page. It'll be Team Bucks Cute Pets. And uh, this will get we'll get a thread going on that. And uh, with that, I'm going to have to close up the, the doors to the Freedom Hut Swamp Edition today. Uh, from down here in our nation's capital, uh, my friends, my extended family, my fellow patriots, always an honor, privilege, and pleasure to be here with you. I will see you tomorrow, same time, same swampy place. As always, shields high. Well, my friends, it is getting swampy here in Washington, D.C. They're saying that it might be up in the 90 degrees area in just a few days. Uh, Now, that's not something I like. I'm more of a cool weather guy, but at least I can cool off with the best tequila on the market right now. G4 tequila. G4 tastes incredible. And once you understand the backstory, you know that this is a company that is multi-generational, The agave that they use in this process, the water they even use in the distillation and all the different steps, make sure that this is an artisanal liquor that you are going to absolutely savor and enjoy. You can mix it in margaritas, you can drink it straight or throw some uh, salt on the rim and some rocks in the glass. However you like it, go to g4.life, g4tequila.life, that's g 4 tequila.life for more details also you can give them a like on facebook at facebook.com slash g4 tequilas